Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bitter Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. For episode seven, a pop called Quest takes on the role of hip hop culture and democratic politics. The Atlantic hip hop community has been politic and hard. Jeezy and Gucci Mane got ready for a versus battle at Magic City Strip Club as Stacey Abrams popped into the club on the big screen, encouraging the patrons to vote in 2020. Big Boy fed poll workers and Angela Barnes directed exotic dancers in a public service announcement to get out the vote. These are some of the examples of hip hop activism in a recent CNN story by Elliot C. McLaughlin. What roles does culture play in politics? Why does hip hop have the spotlight? Can hip hop do it alone or must it be part of a larger movement of movements to hold political representatives accountable? Sage, what you got? Yo, what's up, science? Happy 2021, my brother. Happy New Year. So glad to get out of that 2020. Oh, man. We made it out, didn't we, man? <sighs> yeah, we did. Yeah. Well, it's good to... Uh, Start off my new year building with my brother. There you go. Uh, last episode seems like it was ages ago. No joke. In that episode, we took up the topic of black reparations and we asked lots of questions, most important of which is can cutting checks to black folk close the wealth gap and put an end to intergenerational wealth transfers? Now, we didn't resolve that issue because, of course, we plan to come back to it at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. Before that episode, we discussed the importance of creating a movement of movements to make sure democracy delivers the goods. And then the episode before that, we had Georgia on our mind. Now, my brother, we got Atlanta and its hip-hop community on our mind. Mm -hmm. So as you know, man, I was telling you, I was featured in this uh, super dope CNN story on the role of Atlanta rappers in helping to flip the White House Democrats during the recent election and the role that they're playing now in trying to make sure Georgia can lock down these two Senate seats. The journalist that I rap with is a real student of the hip hop game and the Atlanta hip-hop community's contribution to politics. We had a really broad-ranging discussion about the topic. And one distinction that I thought we put on the table uh, didn't really come up so much in our conversation during the interview. But the distinction between hip-hop making a contribution through the bars and the hooks or as we might say through the, you know, the content of the art form, what's being said. And on that tip, of course, we got to give a quick shout out to the memory of MF Doom, <clears throat> an all-time hip-hop legend, one of the great, greatest hip-hop lyricists who we just found out passed away uh, in October sometime, but we just found out this week. Damn. So one part of his contribution to the to the bars and the hooks, the, the content of the art form, and then the other contribution is through activism, 
organizing, stumping for politicians, and so forth. And it was the hip-hop contribution through activism that was the main focus of uh, the CNN story. So I think this makes for a really nice topic for us to start the new year off with science. And on the menu today, we've got culture's impact on politics. Culture can influence who gets to represent us in selecting political representatives and setting public policy, legislative agenda. And we can also ask whether culture, at least hip hop culture in particular, should do that solo or as part of a larger movement of movements. And there are a couple of questions that we clearly got to break down man, and delve into. This. What is culture? What role did it play or fail to play historically in racial uplift? Why is hip hop not film, literature, art, or theater running the point on the current black cultural contributions to politics? And why is it so hot now? And I thought that we would prime ourselves for this conversation, my brother, by starting with this quote I dug up from Harold Cruz. Uh, it's written in uh, 1957, mm-hmm. speaking about what he called the Afro-American. That was the term he used. Here's the quote. In politics, his lack of economic controlling power renders his political bargaining power effect only during presidential elections when his vote is sought after numerically, end quote. This still rings true to me. This time around, black culture in the form of the hip hop community helped run the numbers up for the Democrats. So science, I thought we'd start with maybe you offering us some perspective on what if any work has been done in political science on the role of culture in politics. Are there any important studies? What do they tell us? What are some of the main conclusions? And if not, why not? Why are there so few studies? Hmm. Oh, good question. I mean, so political culture is a, is a, what is referred to as political culture is, is a relatively large field um, in, um, in political science. Actually, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Ron Englehart, who's actually, I think, one of the most cited political scientists, um, either living or, or past, actually, I think he's, he, he's rolling like that. His particular interest is on political culture. His, um, one of his arguments, and definitely his work would be um, placed up there, and we'll, we'll cite it in the website. His work will be placed up there as one of the more important things. And he's got this idea about um, people being formed by the kind of... Um, kind of um, economic situations that they grew up within. And then that influences their ideas and they're kind of like, that kind of establishes a, a culture in a sense with regards to their worldview and then how they're going to behave subsequently, which is really powerful, right? Because he argues this stuff happens when you're a child. Um, and then there's cultures of poverty and cultures of deprivation and these end up influencing how you how you behave politically for the rest of your life, which is really, which is really powerful. And um, Sidney Verba, um, another one, argue that kind of like it's um, the idea of how you get to a democracy has to be viewed as kind of moving through um, culture in a sense. You need to have the right culture to sustain democracy. You need to have the right culture for people to make the right decisions. You need to have the right culture and the, the right values and so forth um, in order to kind of like pull off. Um, 
the difficulties that exist with democratic deliberation and communication and so forth. And so um, culture has been intricately connected with many aspects of, um, of political science. And so this then um, begs the question, how do you cultivate that culture that is best for political democracy or best for mobilization. And that's where um, a lot of uh, controversy exists with regards to kind of like how best to communicate it. Um, like, so you folks like um, John um, Dewey would argue kind of like, well, okay, you get there through education, through the proper education, you create the proper culture, which then leads to the proper behavior in different types of democratic and political processes. And so um, it's a huge literature in many respects. What's interesting though is, um, where black folk and their culture fits in many respects. Because um, there's not a tremendous amount in the political science literature and most of sociology with regards to kind of like, you know, so what is it about black culture that could be moved to make them more political? Um, and so most of the focus has been on like successful social movements, so-called successful social movements like the civil rights movement and trying to gauge what the what the culture of the movement was and the songs they used to mobilize and the way that they framed things in terms to, to kind of get people to see their position and adopt it and so forth. And so um, but the, the sheer breadth of black culture. You know, black film, uh, my boy Darren Davis and I, who you finally connect, connected with, Darren and I did a piece on the movie Malcolm X. And we did this experimental treatment to see if Malcolm X changed your opinions about certain things. So we had a, a simple pre-post design. So we did some surveys before and then, then the film came out and then we did some surveys afterwards. Um, and one of the reasons why we thought film would have um, or the Malcolm X film would have such a big impact is because of the, the role that Malcolm has within um, black culture and black identity. We were just like, if anything, if any film was going to have an impact, it was going to be this one. Um, but there's very few pieces that were done like that that looked at it rigorously or kind of like looked at a, a musical intervention or looked at um, theater, theatrical kind of intervention. And so I think the sheer breadth of um, black culture has not been really fundamentally addressed within the literature. So, so there's a, there's a lot there. Um, just on a, when you mentioned the Malcolm X joint, uh, thinking of brother Spike, I mean, when that film came out right in about, probably about 1992, right? I don't even remember. It seems like I, decades ago. Yeah. Let me tell you why. I think it was 90, 92. And here's why. Um, it's funny, man, that you say this, I'm trying to figure out where, where we, um, we were in, um, oh, we were in Pittsburgh. Um, 1992, my oldest daughter was born and, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, we, the, the, the Malcolm X flick was the first movie we went to with her. <laughs> oh, wow. It came out, you know, and she was born and we wanted to go to a flick. So we went to see the Malcolm X joint because I couldn't miss that, you know, Brother Spike. And so that was the first film she she went to. Um, so that's I think it was 92, man. It was a long November, time. November 18, 1992. There you go. She was born on September 11th. Oh man. She's born September 11, 92, and we went to this joint to see Malcolm X. And she was so well behaved, man. We had the popcorn, we was kicking it. 
and saw saw Malcolm Denzel Spike. It was good, man. So y'all just, y'all just trying y'all just trying to like indoctrinate her from jail. <laughs> so so yeah, man. So that brings back a nice memory. So look, man. Before we get into this whole question of how we might leverage culture for politics, um, I mean, as you know, science, you know, each discipline, whether you're talking about political science. Uh, sociology, philosophy, you know, English, and so forth, uh, they have their own sort of um, way of understanding terms and concepts. And culture clearly is a, is, a, is, a, is a term, concept that we hear thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And so can we get a little bit of uh, elaboration uh, on on that notion of culture and 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 what meaning is attached to it in in, in your field and, and and in the fields that you're familiar with. Good. Um, well, I think it's um, um, like the customs, mores, institutions, and achievements of a particular group of people, nation, people, social group. Um, the attitudes of how they see themselves and how they see the world. Um, and that can obviously involve language. It can obviously involve um, um, all the different arts, art forms that you might have, like um, uh, music, fine art, and so forth. And so um, I think that's the general way that someone would understand culture. This is clearly a controversial um, mm-hmm. issue in many respects, right? Um, it's like, you know, so um, what's Black culture? I mean, what I what I find interesting about conversations about Black folk um, is it's just like, okay, so is there something distinct that is about Black folk with regards to their worldview and how they think they should engage with one another and the polity? Um, and if that's so, then all conversations about trying to basically just make them equal American citizens by essentially making them white is antithetical to that idea. So the interest of people that, that actually even want to find out if anything like culture exists and is distinct across peoples is highly controversial. So in political science, you don't see, you don't see, you don't see a lot of that because there's a kind of a, there's an underlying presumption, right? It's just like, like the, the we talked about this before with regards to symbolic representation. It's like, I, as a, I, I as a citizen want a political leader that looks like me. Is basically where it goes. It says nothing about, and then the presumption is that they would have similar values and a similar culture. And I'm like, um, wow, really? I mean, <laughs> that's a very kind of simplistic con- conception. And oh, there's only one black culture. Uh, so it's a highly controversial topic in many respects. But I think those are the general components of it: customs, arts, beliefs, mores, institutions um, regarding a particular group or people. Okay, well, let, let's we, we can we can deal with that as we as we move forward. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a good start. So as I noted, the the focus of the CNN story had to do with the activism in the Atlanta hip hop community to get out the vote uh, and to and to uh, uh, mobilize folks to support. Uh, Biden and Harris, and now the, the 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 candidates running for for Senate. Now, but but I, but I want us to sort of stick with this other dimension of the question about culture, right? So, one way is to think about hip hop artists 
as individuals who represent a culture, but also see themselves as members of the polity with certain civic responsibilities to uh, participate in the political process, right? So that's, that's kind of what the piece is about. But there, there's this other question that we should, we should really stick with for just a bit that has to do more with, with the content. Now, on this content question, there, there's sort of a, there's like an old debate that, that played out in Black Thought. And um, uh, the, the, question, the question was really whether culture, however we're going to define it, science, should be political. Right. Mm-hmm. You just started by telling us about your colleagues work and how culture could be leveraged for, for politics. But then there's a there's sort of a normative question about whether it should be political. Yeah. So this old debate took place between W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, who we've talked about on the pod. And roughly Du Bois argued that. Thinking about Negro art. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it should basically work to to represent the black experience in ways that contribute to racial uplift mm-hmm. and the broader quest for freedom, justice, and equality. Now, really, he's talking about art, but it's a, it's a broader point about culture. Now, in this sense, culture represents art, dance, theater, film, literature, music, poetry, etc., Right. So the argument was that the artist, the dancer, the choreographer, the filmmaker, the poet should use these cultural forms for broadly political purposes. Mm-hmm. Now, his contemporary, Elaine Leroy Locke, who some people describe as the father of the Harlem Renaissance, was a philosopher and he disagreed with Du Bois on this point, mm-hmm. right? He, he thought that art, cultural production should, shouldn't be propagandized. And culture creators simply had to just use their voice to express their creativity in producing aesthetic products, mm-hmm. right? So art, first and foremost and mainly, should just be about self-expression. And it shouldn't be reactive, reactive to to black oppression, reactive to white supremacy, reactive to injustice, right? And and then trying to portray blacks as cultured or as progressive or as fully human in response to dehumanization or oppression or insult and what have you. Mm -hmm. So this, this was sort of a real debate. And so I guess, what do you think about this particular question, this normative question about whether culture understood as these art forms should be political or mainly just forms of self-expression, plain and simple. Damn. Yeah. I'm going to get see. you the sage out, bro, today. Yeah, for 2021, for 2021 yeah. I'm going to bring the sage out of you, my brother. Uh, okay. I need to get, I need, okay. Okay. So, yeah. Again, so this guy, Pierre Vandenberg, has this argument, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, and he views states as nation killers. So his argument was that um, you had a particular group of individuals and they used the mechanism of the state to subjugate all other nations, all mm. other all other cultures, all other identities. Mm. And so from that perspective, um, any articulation of 
expression that reflected one's kind of personal experience or orientation towards the world would be by definition political because it would be deemed threatening to the hegemonic mm. identity. Mm. So culture by definition is political. <laughs> and so the minute you start to engage in any form of expression, um, and that could be viewed as threatening to those in power, then you could be targeted and thus we get we get the state, we get the we get the nation killing, we get repression, we get, I mean, there's mm. some controversy about the Harlem Renaissance, right? It's like where the money come from? Mm. Um, why, why do we have a cultural renaissance of expression and there was no politics involved or traditional politics? So it's like some kind of viewed the Harlem Renaissance as a, as a mechanism to pacify black folk. That's why I got some internet, they got some national sponsorship from the, from the government to facilitate that type of thing. Mm. Now that's an interesting move because it, it challenges the, the, the premise of, of the lock position, yeah. which is that uh, a, there's it's something about our exercise of our agency mm. that can determine whether the art form becomes political or not. Mm. But the, but that premise you're rejecting and saying, well, no, it's not really up to us. It's up to like something apart from us, which is society, uh, 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 how we're taken, how we're how we're viewed, how we're understood. Yeah. In this broader societal context, yeah. um, that determines whether the expression is political. Yeah. Um, and under sort of maybe broader conditions of injustice, it, it, it is it is impossible to to have any form of expression that is not going to be sort of viewed as 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 political by by that by that standard, right? But I'm a, I'm really caught, right? Because uh, yeah, been, I mean that's a, that's a strong position. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Etienne de la Bautille, I'll, I'll invoke him too, talks about like bread and circuses, right? So his whole pivot within his book is like, you know, why, why are people obeying? And it's just like, we spend way too much time talking about force and aggression and coercion. Mm. De la Bautille was kind of like, you know, sometimes leaders just, they could just give you some bread and get you to chill. And sometimes they could create a circus and invoke your participation in this. So there's the part of, there's a part of me that whenever folks start to kind of go in this cultural direction, and self-expression and celebrating whatever i'm kind of like circus and so i'm like there's a circus hesitancy i have to <laughs> to any of the theater i'm just like and then the hardcore version of me wants to kind of like it's like no no, no i should just be political acknowledging that you can merge them mm. so man this just kind of hit me as you were as you were talking um so, yeah, I mean, this, and now we're trying to sort of just unpack this this relationship between culture and 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 politics in, in, in different yeah. ways. So here's something to think about. I don't know if this analogy is perfect. Um, part of what I want to do is sort of see if we can put a little pressure on this idea that culture is somehow inherently political, mm. right? Because because that's the way it's going to sort of be viewed. Um, Maybe you want to say this is true in particular about black culture. I mean, I don't know, but you know, let's, let's think about it for a second. Mm. So this this is like an example. So you remember like when this past past summer, when the athletes, I'm thinking about LeBron James and, and others, 
weighed in on the BLM protests that were taking place in the aftermath of the, aftermath of the Floyd murder, right? Mm. There were some people who said, look, these athletes should just play ball and stay out of politics, right? Now, <clears throat> some people might say something similar about rappers. They mm. should just spit these bars and stay out of politics. Now, that, that seems like problematic on a lot of different levels, but one level in which it's problematic is because now we get back to the content. Some rap artists have invested that art form into being political, right? Mm -hmm. So we think about PE, of course, we think about Dead Prez, we think about, you know, Killer Mike, you know, from, from Atlanta, uh, you know, long, long list of uh, rappers who have use the art form to politics, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But then one interesting thing is that, you know, the, the, the genre of hip hop music that people, you know, call trap music, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or crunk, you know, coming out, of, coming out of Atlanta, coming out of the South, was sometimes viewed as devoid of that politics, right? Mm -hmm. Like they got, they, 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 built, they built their reputation on music that other people saw as really not political at all. Like their brothers from Florida. So, so basically, mm. here you got the situation where, well, this question about culture having to be political, right? You got a mm. genre of music that was criticized by people within the hip-hop community is, is not being political, right? Yeah. Being just about party and bullshit and so forth. Yeah. So, but of course, the irony of all of that so you look at Lil Wayne, you look at folks that brought that stuff, now they got a huge platform. And if yeah. they decide to turn their attention to activism, they got legions of folks yeah. that they can speak to. Mm. Speak to me a little bit about this. I mean, I don't have a coherent question and all that, but you see the things I'm pointing to here. It's funny. The minute you say that, I think a fight club. Mm. There's a there's a moment in Fight Club where um, the mm. Tyler Durden character. Um, so basically, and it's a really it's an, is it. Have you read the book? I saw the the Brad Pitt joint. Yeah, man. It's a book. You know, usual book was interesting. But the thing yeah. that's interesting about the so you remember the pivot. This is after the um, the mobster guy comes to like evict him out of the location, mm. and then Brad Pitt basically lets him beat him up. And then turns the tables on them. And then they basically, then the mob ends up leaving. And then, and this is after they've like been fighting for months and they've recruited folks and all this other business. And then he just kind of crosses his legs and he's just like, okay, let's try something new. And so for me, that pivot was fascinating because it's just like, okay, he, he, he pulled you in mm. and the group pulled you in similar to the rap groups. They pulled you in by something that seemed open. It seemed fun. It seemed light. You could kind of go there with them and just like feel it and not have to think about stuff. And then the Brad Pitt cross your legs and be like, okay, now let's do something different. That's a powerful pivot point. And that actually mm. speaks to the mm. power of culture mm. to, to provide the common language, right? I, can, I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the book, but I'll, I'll make sure I put it up on the site. There's some book that talks about, it's like the plantation is the location where African-American identity was cultivated because folks were coming from all these different tribes and did not speak the same language. Mm. And, then, and then music was one of the things that basically helped bring them together. Mm -hmm. 
And that was a powerful kind of way of thinking about it. Cause then after you, after you had that kind of, okay, we worked out some similarities. Okay. We have some other, we have some other things that are there. Cross your leg. Now let's talk about something different. Mm, yeah. That's and powerful. That, that for me. Yeah. I always thought that was kind of powerful, but as you said that, that's, that's what kind of made me think about that. Yeah. And I think, I think this partly accounts for why um, some of the, some of the artists that are discussed in in the in the story or mentioned in the story on um, Two Chains, Ti, um, you know it's Killer Mike. Um, you you've got artists that have invested the substance of their art form in writing lyrics that are explicitly political, and then you may have ones that haven't invested as much in that, but. Whether they have or not, they have become cultural icons mm-hmm. in this iconic black art form of hip hop and have built a platform that now allows them to use their voices as citizens yeah. and to engage people in their communities. And as citizens and as people who have come out of those communities, this is something I know T.I. has often said, you know, it's like, look, people are quick to condemn hip hop for its substance, but they don't stop to think about what many of these artists represent. They represent people who know, who've lived in these communities, who come from these communities, who dealt with these problems in their lives, the lives of their families, the lives of their friends. And they're using this sort of art form to sort of shine a spotlight in all kinds of ways mm. on what that look, what those problems look like, and what some of the consequences are of having to live through those problems. And so we find that these artists now are taking ownership of their role as uh, citizens with large platforms who can contribute to social transformation by drawing attention to their celebrity. And using that in certain ways, right? Yo, I mean, I mean, I done some interview on kind of like athletes and activism, and someone was asking this similar kind of question about you know should should athletes yeah. be political? And my comment was right. like you know back to the Coliseum, right? Long arguments about Jordan, right? Jordan, Michael Jordan wasn't political enough for a lot of people, right? In a way that yeah, LeBron, exactly. for example, has been exactly. But it's like um, you know, and part of my response was kind of like. Um, mm given the platform that they were provided mm. and, you know, similar to kind of gladiators, um, if we're going to give so much attention to folks in a particular venue, they're kind of freed up to do what they do when in a sense they become a little bit larger than life than the sport. You remember, um, you remember rollerball? Yeah. Yeah. That joint. I remember that movie. Not the L.A. Kill J one, but the one with James Conn. That was just like, you know, <laughs> it's like, let, let's be clear. I was thinking that, bro. Come on, man. Yeah, just be clear. Just be clear. It's like, I was, somebody, somebody, somebody tied to that later version. But at a certain point, he becomes bigger than the sport, right? And, just, and people just like, they're, not, they're no longer talking about, you know, rollerball. They'd be like, Jonathan, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he's able to kind of like basically put forward a transformative moment. So in, a many, in many senses, it's just like, if we're going to put so much attention on folks in a particular venue and give them some creative license, we're also giving them license to kind of like bring forward what they wish to kind of like articulate in terms of their diagnosis, prognosis, or means. Mm, mm, mm. So, um, okay, man. So give us give us some more 
scholarly context on this on this point, man. I know you were raving about uh, this this book by Errol Henderson, man. The revolution yeah. will not be theorized: cultural revolution in the Black Power era. And so, yeah, part part of what's going on there is this sort of analysis of the role that cultural producers have um, have had and 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 should continue to to to, to play in social, economic, and political revolution. So, um, you know, give us, give us a little context on, on that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, Aaron, I go way back. And so I've seen a bunch of evolution of his work and this was a, this was a huge one in many respects. Um, one of the groups that I studied, the Republic of New Africa, they had, um, a particular theoretical orientation. Now I wasn't, um, it, it's now clear why, um, Errol viewed that particular piece the way that he did because there's this reverse civilization component where folks are kind of like, they're kind of looking down on African-American culture and they're looking to Africa to kind of resolve some problems. And, and, and his thesis is interesting in the sense that he argues that many of the black nationalists of the 60s and 70s were basically adopting this kind of like um, domestic anti-colonialism model where they envision themselves as being some kind of um, rurally oriented kind of rebellious group that was fighting against um, some colonial power. And part of his book is to kind of disabuse us. He's like, no, we, we as African-Americans were highly industrialized, um, fairly well-educated, and it's pretty sophisticated. So not this rural situation, mostly urban. And we weren't fighting in some metropole that had some loose connection to some colonial power. We were, we were waging a battle in, in one of the most powerful nations on the planet. And so he's trying to kind of disabuse that. And, and so part of his pivot here is just like, okay, so had they not looked abroad for, um, had African-Americans not looked abroad for an answer regarding their diagnosis and means to get to their prognosis, had they not looked abroad and they looked internally, he was like, they should have been guided by um, what happened when African-Americans rose up in the context of the U.S. Civil War, which is going to be shocking some people, right? Be like, oh, I thought I thought Lincoln ended the slavery. And it's like, no, Du Bois talks about this, um, but then in Black Reconstruction, but, but then Arrow pulls out really clearly that there's something phenomenal about what happens in the context of slavery as Blacks just, they withdraw, they, they pull back their support for the slave system. They run away to the North when possible, or they just produce less. I mean, so there's a fundamental withdrawing that takes place. But what's interesting and related to the earlier point, what's interesting is um, culture facilitated this mass withdrawal of support and participation within slavery. Mm. And so part of the pivot is to get us to, to not look at kind of like, what was the argument? I think he argues, rather than look at Che Guevara, they should have looked at Michael Collins. Um, in Northern Ireland, identifying that that was a more um, appropriate analogy to be made. And so a really powerful point. But um, by highlighting Du Bois, by highlighting Locke, he identifies um, the central role that cultural production plays in facilitating mobilization for politics. Mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful stuff. So so let's let's stick with this for, for a second. And, and obviously, man, we... we you know, we we stretching out in different ways, but we still in the pocket in terms of trying to think a little bit about ultimately about about hip hop's relationship to politics. But there's a little bit of background that one you know wants to sort of get into, um, mm -hmm. which which 
which we're trying to do, I think. So as a little bit more of that um, toward that end, um, so we uh, Henderson talks about Elaine Locke and Harold Cruz in his in his book. I mean, there's there's rich discussion of thinkers in the black tradition that have helped helped us think about culture. So another dimension of Locke's thinking, Elaine Locke, that is, I mean, he sort of he thought that you know black aesthetic production should should resist being ghettoized, right? Put in a box and the black artist should aim to be part of the larger American art scene, should aim to contribute to the production of American art, you know, more generally. And this is something that Harold Cruz, who you know came came later, um, um, was was very critical of. So in in the 1957, you know, Cruz published a collection of essays and he sort of explored a number of different themes around culture. So again, thinking of culture broadly to include art, literature, music, drama, dance, et cetera. Mm. He suggested that you expect to see a relationship between culture, science, and liberation. That is, wherever there's a flowering or growing of culture, that should go hand in hand with a rise in self-determination of a particular people, right? But he laments that black culture at the time was not flourishing. And it couldn't flourish so long as it was predicated on two things. A retreat from blackness, right? Where the black uh, cultural producer found themselves with, with the choice of whether to develop Afro-American culture or Anglo-American culture. Mm-hmm. And so one sort of famous example of, of you know what the you know how this how this question gets resolved, and somebody we'll talk about shortly, um, Alvin Ailey, mm-hmm. great choreographer, famously rejected being called a black choreographer. <laughs> he wanted to be called a choreographer, right? So this is this is one thing that Cruz was sort of lamenting about, right? This this sort of retreat from from blackness. Mm-hmm. Now the other thing he was upset about was the, the absence of control of cultural p- products mm-hmm. within the black community. So at the time, right, Harlem, for example, was considered the cultural capital of the black world. But Cruz said, look, why don't we have any blacks operating theaters in Harlem yeah. that are devoted to black productions? Right, that are devoted to Afro-American cultural traditions in drama, dance, or other performing arts. Right, so he was sort of he was sort of concerned that, for the most part, black culture wasn't up to the task of supporting liberation, self-determination. Mm-hmm. Right, insofar as it was sort of, in a way, just opting for assimilation or some sort into Anglo-American mm-hmm. culture. So a couple things, like with respect to Alvin Ailey, right, dancer, director, masterful choreographer who gave us revelations, right, founder of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. And um, interestingly enough, the, the theater, um, which 
which was founded to celebrate Black culture through dance, was founded in 1958, one year after Cruz published his piece. <laughs> and I know you got a personal connection science um, to this that, that our listeners probably need to hear about. And so maybe you could speak a little bit about Ailey to assess some of Cruz's worries about this retreat from Blackness, the absence of control, and to share more uh, of your personal sto- personal connection on this point. Ah, uh, yo, man. Um, so my mom, uh, then Jerry Signius, now Juliet Signius, um, she was in the high school performing arts from fame, fame. And as she was coming out, evidently, um, my mom was the joint because um, she was getting offers from Juilliard, Full Ride, Martha Graham, and the New York City Ballet. Mm. And um, basically, the brother who goes to create Dance Theater Harlem, Arthur Mitchell, they were trying to pair my mom up to be his partner. And so she went to go to New York City Ballet and train with them to be Arthur's partner, but she hated ballet. And simultaneously, it's funny that Cruz makes this comment about Ailey, because mom mom decides to go with Alvin over New York City Ballet, Juilliard, and Martha Graham because he was teaching her about Black culture. Mm. And she had not yet been exposed to it in the way that he was articulating it. And she found that very powerful. And wanted to learn more, wanted to experience more. And she was like, I mean, she was the eighth member of the, of the, of the, of the company. And so, you know, definitely kind of in that founding spirit um, where basically it was a bunch of black dancers that were hanging out in some basement or in a church someplace, getting whatever space they could and trying to work out what, it, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine, it, it's hard to imagine Ailey not being Black, when you think of revelations and when you think of the of the components to it, right? The the music, the connection to the church, the connection to struggle, the connection to these beautiful kind of like not just aesthetics, right? Because there's a huge conversation about like whether or not it's all aesthetic or there's something else. But the black aesthetic is clearly there, and they're clearly working that out. And the resonance off of that for those for those that have never seen it before was incredibly powerful. But the personal story to my mom was she had never. It's funny, right? Because she grew up in Harlem. She talks about seeing Billie Holiday. She talks about seeing um, Pro Bailey. She talks about seeing Malcolm X on the street, mm. but still felt no strong connection to Black culture because most of our family were basically the assimilationists, and they were just trying to get jobs at Western Union and just try to you know mm. handle business, but they didn't want to go too black because that would be a, that could be a problem, right? And right. so her older sister, Thelma, was pulling her away from seeing Malcolm when he was on the street. I remember she told me that story. But the thing that's really fascinating is this element of, so then she's exposed to it. And then she's kind of like, um, I need more of that. I feel, I feel connected to that. And so just like this broader conversation about how culture can politicize that that exposure to this thing that she had a connection to and felt a felt a resonance with, but wasn't clearly able to articulate it, pulled her in. Now, Ailey, it turns out, wasn't, you know, he wasn't explicitly political in many ways, but through her conversation, right, I realized that um, she then has a connections with like Cicely Tyson and Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll and Sammy Davis Jr. Because there was another cohort of this theater group that was working out, you know, trying to get their stuff on. And they happen to intersect with the with these dancers. And so there's clearly the sum of that. And 
what becomes interesting is like, okay, we know about Harry Belafonte's um, politics, but they, these folks all kind of knew each other. And so there is some fluidity, I think, between the cultural production and um, and also we're dealing with a high degree of segregation in the 50s, right? So folks are doing some stuff and there is no National Endowment of the Arts support. There is no exposure to downtown. There is none of that. And so um, I think by definition, the political was invoked in the cultural production. That's heavy. And, you know, that 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 that, that bears that makes it bears worth mentioning that. Remember, like, I mean, the. Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision that said that separate but equal mm-hmm. was unconstitutional was in 1954. So yeah. it was three years later that Cruz was laying out this critique, partly of the, the American left, partly of the black left, and partly of the black elite, the so-called assimilationists, right? Yeah. And but But to be fair, by the time we get into the 60s, by the time we get deep into the civil rights movement, you know, he, he had come around. He, I think he, he had sort of softened his, his sort of critique of black culture. And then interestingly enough, it might be right that Ailey, even though Ailey said, look, I want to be known as a choreographer, a choreographer, not a black choreographer, as you said, and your mother's experience attests to, that might have been part of what helped shift people like Cruz on this, on this point. Mm-hmm. What Ailey did, what, with black theater, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but 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 at least in this early period, you know, shortly after Brown versus Board in, in the, the late 50s, Cruz thought basically that jazz was an exception mm-hmm. to an otherwise low point in black aesthetic creativity, um, um, which he thought more broadly didn't fully embrace the development of Afro-American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thought that jazz was basically one Afro-American cultural product that the white world sought to appropriate and, and emulate. Mm-hmm. And so here's a quote from Cruz. We will have to write a new philosophy of art, the basic principles of which must be to please ourselves first and others secondly. Mm-hmm. Today, the only Negro artist who approaches this attitude is the jazz musician. And he has more respect from the whites for this integrity. The jazz musician is the one artist we have who whites try to imitate. Everyone respects true originality. Now, as I sort of read this man, and I was also thinking about MF Doom passing away, great lyricist. You know, he's like the MC's MC. When you ask like an MC who their top five is, a lot of them are going to say MF Doom because mm-hmm. the lyricism was so cold. Right. So one might say today, you know, if you if you hip hop occupies the role that the jazz musician occupied yeah, yeah. In, in the 50s. Right. It, it, hip hop didn't succumb to what Cruz calls Caucasian idolatry in the arts. That's an interesting mm-hmm. turn of phrase. Right. Mm-hmm. So in this other piece, um, an Afro-American's cultural views, here's what Cruz has to say. He says the root of the Afro-Americans' problems in the cultural fields is a debilitating sickness whose diagnosis is Caucasian idolatry in the arts. That's powerful. Abandonment of true identity and immature childlike mimicry of white aesthetics. 
Many Afro-Americans express this trend willingly as a matter of choice, as a way of life based on class origins, skin color, and personal affinities. So perhaps, man, what we're seeing with hip-hop activism, now I know I'm making a big pivot, but here it is anyway, you know I like to sage out, is a rejection of Caucasian idolatry in politics and political activism. Maybe hip-hop, you see where I'm going, is showing us a new way deeply rooted in the Black aesthetic to do politics, right? So, for example, while we might still hear somebody say, I'm interested in theater, not just Black theater, or I want to be a writer, not just a Black writer, right? You ain't Mm. never going to hear a brother or sister say, I'm interested in being viewed as a rapper, not just a Black rapper. (laughs) that That shit sounds insane. Right. You would never hear that. Speak to me, science. I mean, I know there's a lot on the table, but, you know, I'm thinking about Alvin Ailey's black theater legacy. I'm thinking about hip hop. I'm thinking about the rejection of Caucasian idolatry and arts and activism. Give me give me a little something on this. I think it's um, it's a it's it's a really powerful kind of position that folks are placed within. Right. It's just like there's something there's something that feels marginalized about associating with the persecuted minority. Mm. And there's, there's a desire you might have to not be persecuted. And you're just like, hey, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I want to, I believe my stuff is as dope as these people over here. So I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be subject to this limitation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really powerful, right? I'm thinking of Chris Rock. It's like, um, for white people, the sky's a limit. For black people, the, the limit's the sky. <laughs> it's like the big, the big kind of like, you know, fundamental framing differential. But then it's, it's interesting, right? Because um, Jay-Z doesn't need to say he's a black rapper. Mm. He just manifests it, right? And, and mm. you know, like, uh, okay, I, I've been all Hamilton all the time now recently. Lin Manuel, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we might as well go ahead and get to it, um, but, right? Yeah, go ahead. But Lin Manuel, like he, like you could see he. This is a this is an extension of the hip hop culture because he embodies it mm. and uses it in the context of theater to show this theatrical hip hop interface. And I don't remember, I don't know if you remember um, remember that whack. Um, hip hop uh, Carmen that they tried to come out with. Mm, mm, oh, man, whack. Yeah. But I'm just like, you know, so from my perspective, I'm glad they didn't give up on the idea completely of trying to invoke hip hop into the theatrical con- conception. But Miranda pulls it off in a way that shows it's like he don't need to say this is black and Hispanic culture. You just feel it. Mm. You hear it in the lyrics and the, and the diversity of rap. And then he's invoking jazz and then he's invoking R&B. It's just like, and then the visual aesthetics, like you could say what you want to, you know, it's a story about a bunch of white people, but it's powerful. It's powerful to see a bunch of blacks, Latinos up on stage doing the founding fathers and mothers. It's just power. You can't step away from it. And then that hybridic component becomes fascinating. So Miranda never has to say, it's like, you know, this is, this is a, a black and Latino version. He doesn't have to say any of that. He can just do it. And it's just, so it's just like, so it's like, it's like Jay-Z's version. Right. And, you know, at a certain point, Miles might've taken the kind of black label. Another point, he probably was like, I'm beyond labels. And then just did it. But in him doing it and how he did it, it still spoke to that, that powerful kind of like association with the culture. And that's interesting because we're trying to transcend and, and speak this universal voice, but at the same time, the way that we speak is conditioned in many respects by 
our experience and use of language and metaphors and so forth. And there's a certain cadence and all these other aspects that I think manifest the culture that, that communicates something powerful. And whether or not people can appreciate it is something different, but I think hip hop kind of reveals um, exactly what that is. And definitely I felt that off of Hamilton. You, he, he, like, I think Miranda introduced the first song or one of the early songs of Hamilton as kind of like, you know, Alexander Hamilton is like a prototypical hip hop. He's in a hip hop embodiment was kind of his introduction to it. And, and other folks must've been going, what the heck's he talking about? Until he starts telling the story and then you're just kind of like, yep, I see it. So, so let's, let's just try to break this down just, just, a, just a touch more, man. So, um, okay. So we, you know, Cruz said, look at, you know, late, late fifties, he thought American jazz was, oh, he thought jazz, you know, black jazz was exceptional in that it was, it was just sort of purely authentic. It was a pure, authentic black cultural production that wasn't selling itself out. Mm-hmm. Right. And black and white people was trying to emulate it. One could say the same thing, obviously, about hip hop today, right? So you can think about that both in terms of the, the content, you know, the the beats, the rhymes, the style of hip hop, the language, the swag, so forth, right? It, it permeates everything, and you and you talking now, you're giving this example of Hamilton, how it how, how it permeates, you know, that you know the world of theater, you know, arguably one of the you know most significant theatrical productions, you know, in recent memory in Hamilton, it's all over it. Yeah. So, so, so basically you, we can see that culture is broader, obviously than rap music, but certainly in many ways, hip hop is still running the point culturally yeah. like jazz was right in the fifties and early sixties before Motown yeah. blew up. So now, but there's also this sort of question about, the prominent role that hip hop artists in Atlanta for this election and have taken in other other elections previously are playing in politics. So this question is like, why is hip hop seemingly running the point in black politics? Right? Why why are we why are we seeing this reliance on hip hop artists to save democracy? Right? To get its past due checks that are owed to to us cashed, right? And to fight the power. Why, why is hip hop in that position now? Science, give us give us something to think about. I know you've done a lot of work on black organizations and and so forth, but but give us a little perspective on that. I know that's a big one, but but just give well, us a little bit. It's big in part because I know people aren't gonna like my answer, right? Yeah, it's you like, know they're not. But you might as well go ahead and put it out there, man. Just get ready I'm for like, the hate mail. I'm like, I think that we end up in a spot where some folks without institutions, mm-hmm. without without um, a, an explicitly political beginning or grounding is because in, in large part, a lot of the black organizations that we had previously are gone, they're dead. Mm. Mm. And so we have a purging that takes place of, of the black political spectrum from basically 1865 <laughs> up through 1970, 1980. Where effectively you think of the distribution, think of think of a natural distribution that exists within any community, from the far right to the far left. Mm. We had a purging of the black right and the black left to this moderate position, and effectively all the institutions that represented those extremes were eliminated. Now, what this does historically for us is it eliminates the people that you could draw upon. 
to say or do. It, it, it directs you to read certain things as opposed to others. It takes away a particular language or discourse by, because of those voices have now been purged. But simultaneously, so you have the radical black organizations that are getting picked off um, and then the moderate ones being supported and cultivated. Um, but then you also have, if you think of um, the other thing about Arrow's book is he identifies um, and, and Cruz and Lockpoint in this direction too. The importance of the black church has been gutted. Now this wasn't this wasn't persecuted in explicitly the same way that the Panthers or the RNA or um, all African People's Republic or any of these organizations were persecuted. But there's a shift in kind of like um, capitalism and industrialization and urbanization, which results in black folk having to basically get out and move which hindered their ability to kind of congregate literally in certain types of um, specialized locations where you had a large number of folks that could come to church. And what's interesting is with the loss of these institutions, we're at, we're at a loss to try to figure out exactly where our leaders are coming from. But at the same time, this other dynamic, which is deep, right? Which is just like, where's the, where's the, where's the black version of the Kennedys? Where it's just like, you know, just some black families that over time have just produced a bunch of black folk who are just really good at politics and keep going at it. Those, I mean, it's like, there's no, does John Lewis have any children? Are, are they involved in politics? I don't know. Ron Brown had his son, Michael Brown, but he got busted in some, I went to school with Michael, so I hate to say it, but, um, but he got busted on some, you know, graft corruption thing. Um, and then we don't, I mean, Jesse Jackson Jr. got a position, but then seemed to not necessarily do as well as he wanted to do relative to kind of Obama. They were both coming out of the Chicago black machine, right? And so um, all these blacks that get into politics in the 70s and 80s, they produce smaller, and we know we all know the, the perils of like Harold Washington, right? It's just like, we know of these lower level political machines, but nothing that developed into something that basically would be um, worthy of emulation over time. I mean, one of the reasons why the squad and AOC are so interesting now, right? They, they, there's some new blood in the field and it might, maybe they can pull something off. Um, but again, this historical legacy of these institutions that come from the radical tradition, even the mainstream tradition or outside of that context. And then it's like, we were talking about hockey, my booty's gone, the black press, um, mm. black, black newspapers have been largely squeezed off. Historically, all these black institutions have just gotten dogged. And, and thus, in that, in that vacuum, hip-hop can step forward. You have some individuals who can pull something off. Mm. Well, you know, I'm not sure all of what you, what you had on your mind when you said folks are not going to like your answer to the question. But one way that some people might raise an eyebrow is if they read that as saying, well, damn. They killed off all the black organizations, institutions, and damn hip-hop artists and strippers are resilient. <laughs> they withstood the storm and shit, and they still standing. And that's why we kind of stuck with them trying to flip the White House for the Democrats and get senators elected. I mean, that's, that's like a take. I'm sure that's not your take, but, uh -huh. but just tell, tell us that's not... Let let go on the record, <laughs> so we so we could rest easy, man. That that's not your take on this. No, my, my take is more like a Jim Scott kind of domination, the art of resistance kind of thing. I, I think yeah. there are these. Um, you have a public 
kind of like um, face of challenge and the public face of challenge in the black community got dogged and persecuted and, and mm. shot off and, and bribed and just co-opted mm. uh, and arrested and went in exile. Uh, um, but but the a whole other aspect, and it kind of manifests itself in the culture, right? These other institutions, these other cultural practices existed within the black community and were cultivated and were allowed to continue. Um, and those folks weren't explicitly political in the way that these others were, and thus they weren't as much a target. And so, mm-hmm. it's that, so it's not necessarily resilience, it's about kind of like visibility and obvious nature of challenge kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, now that folks have kind of like had that tradition, that incubator, they've been able to go there. I think an economic version of what I'm talking about is Oprah, right? I mean, it's like, you know, Oprah used... Um, call and response and empathy and all these other things that um, the blacks and black women in particular are able to kind of cultivate and then found a, found a place in, in, in you know, a, a part of Chicago and built it up and like created her empire and then went the economic route and still every now and then does some stuff that's politically oriented. Um, and even you could argue her book club is political, right? And it's like, you know, she could, she could elevate anybody's voice by highlighting it, but she's, she was able to do it from this incubation within this culture thing, not coming out explicitly political and building it and building it and building it and making some pivots. And so I think it's actually um, a strength of um, the subversed, the subverse, the subversive or the subversive nature. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not subversion. Um, The submerged nature, the subterranean nature, the subaltern nature of the challenge that allowed it to survive. That's interesting, man. I mean, this is like a, you know, maybe one last point. This might be a little bit of a stretch, but as you were talking there, I I wonder like if if um uh Brother Ice Cube, um, you know, um Dead Prez, Public Enemy, um groups that were overtly political. If they could have played the role that we see Killer Mike, T.I., 2 Chains, and the Atlanta hip-hop heads playing right now. And one thing you said makes me think maybe they couldn't, partly because their art was already super politicized, Mm. super radicalized, and they may have been viewed for that reason more of a threat, right, in the way that Malcolm was, for example. Mm. Whereas traditional rap music that doesn't have that kind of root, those kinds of roots. True, you've got many Atlanta heads that have been serious about activism for a long time. But again, that's different from the content of the music being sort of identified that way mm-hmm. in the way some of these other groups were. What you think about that as a hypothesis, man? I mean, consider the connection that like um, PE, Paris, a bunch of them had direct connection to the nation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it varied with regards to the degree to which they were actually part of that world. But many rappers at the time had an affiliation with the Nation of Islam. There was no, there was no, there was no association now mm-hmm. that the rappers we have currently have to any organizational outlet like that. Mm. What about BLM? What so it's a very about that? I mean, so it, it, I mean, that's a very different type of organization, right? They're they're purposely trying to not have a leader. They're purposely trying to be as flat as possible. They're purposely trying to not be a target, 
they're purposely trying to not raise overt manifestations of challenge in a way that prior struggles have, so they wouldn't be subject to repression in the same way. And so this is, I think we had a conversation about this before, but I see the BLM creation as being an evolutionary response to what prior social movement organizations look like, what they articulated. And and BLM is trying to avoid that pigeonholing and that targeting mechanism. And part of that makes their message a little bit less overt, a little bit more nuanced and discreet and potentially ineffective. Mm. Wow. Well, man, I'm I'm sure we we've only scratched the surface of this of this topic, and uh, I know we're gonna return to it, man. But uh, I feel like this is a good place to call it a wrap, man. So go ahead and uh, take us home, science. Yo, man, I definitely wanted to do that, but I also liked your phrase that you used earlier. We gather in place. Mm. We gra- we graduated to the movement of movements because we need everybody. We need rappers, we need strippers, we need lawyers, we need doctors. All these folks are necessary to make this progress and, and to take on the manifold aspects of the struggle, reparations, economic justice, healthcare, yeah. all those things that we need to try to get. So, yeah. Amen. Amen to that, man. That's 2021 as I see it. Amen to that, man. We got a lot on the menu, man. There we go. So peace, y'all. Peace. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingthenowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace. Peace.